Hello, um, it's lovely to be speaking to you today. My name's Caroline. I'm a member of Everyday Church. I worship at Everyday Southfields. Um, and I'm bringing you today the first of our Advent series, where we're going to be exploring the generosity of God through the gifts of the wise men. And um, we'll be in Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12, for the whole of those three weeks, as we look together at these three gifts. They're probably familiar to you, but here they are. They're gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we're going to be asking, what do they tell us about the generosity of God? What do these gifts mean? And what do they tell us about the God that we worship? So before we read the passage together, um, as of the first in this Advent series, let's think about where we are in the Bible. We're in Matthew in the New Testament. It's one of our four Gospels, the books that tell us um, the story of Jesus's life on earth. Matthew wrote in Greek. Um, But it's likely that he wrote his book for a Jewish audience. We know that because he references the Old Testament a lot. Um, But although he wrote it for a Jewish audience, he's not just concerned um, with the Jewish people. He knows the gospel is for everyone. And even in this passage, as we learn about the wise men, um, as he brings them into the story, we learn that the gospel is for everyone because um, they were definitely not Jewish. (laughs) So Luke, the other gospel, which contains the story of Jesus' birth, doesn't tell us about these wise men so all we know about them comes from this account of Matthew's so let's read the passage together we're in Matthew 2 verses 1 to 12 after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked where is the one who has been born king of the Jews we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him when King Herod heard this he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So that's Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. That's the passage we're going to be looking at. So in the passage, we hear about these wise men or magi. Magi means priest or scholar. They're from the east, which is a bit vague, um, but it probably means Persia. They're following a new star. So they're astronomers. They're people who look out into the night sky and see what's happening. Um, they study the stars and they've seen something new appear in the night sky. From that and from their studies, they've drawn the conclusion that a new king must have appeared on earth sent by heaven. So naturally, their first port of call is a king on earth, Herod. Um, He doesn't know much about it, but his wise men, his priests, um, think that this king is in Bethlehem, which is where Micah had prophesied hundreds of years before that the Messiah, the new king of the Jews, would be born. So they go to Bethlehem, they find the king, this baby, or most likely a child, actually, because the timeline's quite shortened for us, but um, we think from the passage that Jesus was probably a child at this point, a toddler. Um, And they worship him, and they bring him gifts. The first gift is gold. That's what we'll be talking about today. 
And to be honest, it's probably the most straightforward one to understand, isn't it? So where else do we find gold in the Bible? When they're talking about wealth, about fortune, about power. If you're wealthy, if you have lots of gold, then you have power. We even see it in the story of the golden calf, don't we? When the Israelites want to make something to worship, they make it out of gold, the golden calf. And to be honest, in the 21st century, that's still not hard for us to understand, is it? So our new king in the UK was crowned this year. um, And what was the entire day covered in? It was covered in gold, wasn't it? I don't know if you remember the images of him in a carriage, that was literally every single section of the carriage is covered in gold, or the horses, or the people um, like driving the carriage are covered in gold. And then when he gets to Westminster Abbey, where he's where he's crowned, he's in this huge robe that looks slightly ridiculous, but that's also covered in gold. Um, and so we can tell already that our the way that we think about wealth and power, gold is really important, isn't it? And it's not hard for us to understand that if you're coming to see a king, someone that you believe to be the king, you bring him a gift that's worth something. You know, you bring something that denotes power, that denotes wealth, and that looks really impressive. What do we love about gold? We love the fact that it shines. (laughs) You know, it shines, it appeals to us because of that. Because even though Jesus at this point is a small child, he's born into humble origins, he's a son of a carpenter, he is in fact a king the one and only king, king over all the earth, not just this tiny little bit of Israel. He's not sitting in a palace palace with Herod or like Herod, but nevertheless, he is a king. But what kind of king is he? We're going to look at a few kings in this passage to learn more about what kind of king Jesus is and why we should do as the wise men do in this passage, where they bow down and worship him. So let's think about Herod first. He's the most obvious one, isn't he? He's the king in this passage. I did a little bit of reading about Herod to to prepare for this. What a mad life that guy had. Uh, (laughs) I didn't really know very much about him apart from where he appears in this story. Um, But I read up a bit about him. He was friends with Antony and Cleopatra. You might have heard of them. They're incredible historic figures. Shakespeare wrote a whole play about them because their kind of legacy looms so large. He was friends with them. He was clearly incredibly charismatic um, and he tried to please everyone. So he, he built temples of different religions. He himself was of quite a few different backgrounds and he built temples for different religions. He built a Jewish temple, but he also built temples um, for other religions in the area. But also he was, he was pretty much totally mad. You know, he was power hungry. He was one of those people who power corrupted absolutely. He killed a few of his wives. He had 10 wives in his life. He also killed many of his children when they threatened his rule. It, I even read once something that said that he killed his favourite son. So, he, you know, he played favourites with his children. Um, but then also because he believed that this son was going to usurp him and take over his throne, he had him killed as well. So he's clearly somebody that is, is not, a, not in a stable place. <laughs> Let's say that. Um, and in the passage, we learn that as well, don't we? We don't have to go far. We read at the end that God tells the wise men in a dream to avoid going back to Herod. Herod has this line, doesn't he, where he says, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too may go and worship him. So he lies to them up front because we know later that in fact what he ends up doing is ordering his soldiers, ordering his men to kill all children under two to make sure that he can't be usurped by this king who has appeared. Yeah, when in verse 16, we learn that when Herod realised he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years and old and under in accordance with the time he learnt from the Magi. This is a dangerous king. This is an insecure king. 
This is a person who wants to destroy anything that threatens his kingship. So I think we can agree that he was not a good king. (laughs) But Israel had asked for a king. You know, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel, who's been leading the, the Jewish people, he's a priest and he's a prophet. He's old. You know, he's got old, he's got too old to, to, to lead. Um, and he's, his sons have taken over his duties, but they're really corrupt and the people are not happy. You know, they go to Samuel and they say, we don't like what we have now. You're too old and we don't like your sons. They've corrupted their office. We want a king. All these other nations have kings. We want one of those for us too. We want to be led by someone strong, by a king. So Samuel is obviously understandably not very pleased about this. So he goes to God and he says, they're rejecting me and my sons. You know, they're saying that they don't want my leadership. And God says, no, it's actually me they're rejecting. They're saying, I don't, we don't want to be led by God. We want to be led by a human. And he says, go back and warn them of all the things that will happen if they get their wish, if they get what they want. And this is from, from 1 Samuel 8. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. Then skipping forward slightly, he'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Listen to how many times and all the things that God warned the people a king would take from them. He would take their children, he would take their lives, he would take their livestock, the things they'd worked hard to grow and make and tend. He'll enslave them. <laughs> but still they say, we want a king. So they, God gives them one. And here we are in this passage, hundreds of years later, with the perfect example of this kind of king, a king who takes. This is the kind of king King Herod is. He takes and takes and takes from his people. He's corrupt. And he's not even a true king. You know, he's so insecure about his reign because at the end of the day, he's not actually in charge. The Romans are in charge. The buck stops with them at the end of the day. And I wonder, as we think about Herod, as we think about his reaction in this passage, hopefully we haven't come across somebody quite as extreme as this. But I'm sure you all know of leaders who put their own power before the people people they're supposed to be representing. People who put just staying in power and put that as the most important thing rather than using their power wisely for the people that they're serving. We've all come across people like that. Um, And their charisma is often what draws us in, right? Just like with Herod, who was friends with all these important people who could make deals and make things happen. That sometimes draws us in and we think this is somebody that we want to follow. But the reality is, if there's nothing behind that charisma, if it's just about building more and more power, then that's a king that we don't want to be following. So let's think about some other kings. Let's talk about another kind of king now, the three wise men. Now, this is a bit of a fudge, really. So in our hymns, in our carols that we sing at Christmas time, we sing about we three kings, don't we? They most likely were not kings in reality. So there's no reference to them being kings in the text. At some point in the early history of the church, we started calling them kings. Maybe because just as I'm doing now, it nicely creates three kings for a sermon. You know, it's it's a helpful illustration. Um, Or perhaps because they were clearly wealthy. You know, they're they're carrying around some gold, aren't they? So they're clearly wealthy people. Maybe the people in the early church thought or um, extrapolated from that that they were kings. 
but they are in fact magi or wise men, scholars, priests, people who spent their lives trying to figure out this puzzle of life. Why are we here? Is there a God? Who's in charge? If there is a God, what, what are they like? What is it, she, he, it like? And they studied the stars. Yeah, they studied ancient texts and they tried to find the, the ultimate answers, the different pieces of the puzzle that would fit together perfectly so they'd understand what's going on behind what they could see in front of their eyes. And I think, although they weren't kings themselves, I think this does perhaps show us something else that we put on the throne. Intelligence and cleverness and knowledge. Can I work out the way to be saved? I totally identify with this. You know, I became Christian when I was 15, so I was pretty young, although obviously it did not feel that way at the time. You know, I was very old and wise 15-year-olds, as they all are. Um, But I have been going to church fairly regularly for, for actually about two years before I decided that I was going to follow Jesus with my whole life, that I was actually going to become a Christian. I'd done a lot of Bible studies, you know, I, I really was into like English literature at school and I loved reading texts and thinking, oh, what's what behind this? What does this word mean? So I loved that part of it. I listened to a whole load of talks and sermons on a Sunday morning and in a youth club that I went to as well. So I knew all the stuff, you know, I'd spoken to loads of people, but I'd also seen the people around me who were Christian and seen the way that they acted differently from people who I maybe met at school or like the various different things that I got involved in during the week. And I knew that they were different because they believed in something that others didn't. And it all made sense in my head. And I, th- I think like logically speaking, I was like, yeah, it makes sense to be a Christian. But it took, actually took an encounter with the Holy Spirit before I believed it in my heart. So for me, that was on a Christian youth camp. I think there was something about being away from my day-to-day life that was really helpful for me. So much like the Magi, I had travelled far, intellectually speaking. Anyway, the youth camp was actually in the Scottish borders, so it was not very far away. Um, I hadn't gone very far geographically, and I definitely didn't go on a camel. Um, But I had travelled. You know, I had travelled. All these things I'd learned took me to that place, sitting in front of Jesus and thinking, who are you? And then when I got there, I had to say, not only do I think that this is true. Not only do I think that you're the king, think that you're the person that I should be following. Not only do I think that you died to save me from my sins, but I also believe it to be true. I also know it in my heart of hearts. I know it in my soul. I know it in my spirit. And because of that, I need to change my life, actually. And the major I studied, they obviously really valued wisdom and intellectual pursuits. And they could have gone to Jesus and been like, oh, okay, great. We found the king. Take that off. Off we go. But they didn't make that mistake that some of us do of worshipping knowledge and learning, of just stepping back, looking at the puzzle we've put together and saying, great, on to the next thing. Instead, they got on their camels, they put their learning into action, they journeyed towards the ultimate truth. And when they got there, they knelt down and worshipped. Even this small child in front of them, they knew this is a king that I should worship. Which brings us to that only true king, Jesus. He's the fulfillment of a promise. So like I said earlier, Israel asked for a king. In 1 Samuel 8, they begged for a king, even though they heard all the reasons why that was a terrible idea, how much that king would take from them, how chaotic that would be. They still asked for a king. And we learned that in asking for a king, Israel was actually rejecting God. They were saying, we don't want to be led by you. We don't want to be led by priests. We want to be led by a human king that we can see and touch and follow. But here in the person of Jesus, who's born of a king's line, he's born of David's line, who was one of those kings of Israel, God gives the people what they ask for, and he does what God always, always does when we ask him for things. 
He multiplies our requests beyond what we could ever ask or imagine, doesn't he? They asked for a king and they did it in foolishness. And God said, I'm going to take what you've asked for and make it something incredible. So how is this God king, how is he different to all these human kings that we've heard about, to the, just the abstract thing of knowledge? His life was the opposite of what we expect kingship to be, wasn't it? He was born in humble circumstances. He was on the run. You know, we've heard about how Herod was going to kill all the boys under two. As you probably know from the Christmas story, Jesus' father, Joseph, heard in a dream from God that he should escape. So already as a small child, he's on the run. He's fleeing from this earthly king. But he doesn't need gold carriages. He doesn't need hundreds of servants to show his power. He completely redefines for us what it means to be a king. He's a king who is generous, who gives instead of taking. Instead of being like Herod, who reached for more and more power and killed anyone who got in his way, Jesus does the exact opposite and gives his life. Instead of taking from us, he gives. So John 3.16, that famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The true king does not take from us, but gives, even gives his life to save us from our sins. And human kings have to make compromises, don't they? They stay in power by keeping some people happy and some people afraid. That's that's how they do it at the core. Jesus' kingship isn't like that. So we learn in Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So instead of staying in power by grasping at more of it or by keeping one group of people happy and the other ones not worrying about them too much because they're not powerful, God and Jesus instead says, I'll work for the good of all of those who love him, who love me. But don't be fooled by the humility of Jesus, by what I've just said about how that way he humbles himself into thinking that he doesn't have power. He chooses the humble path, but his rightful place is sitting at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. And yet again, he uses that position of power and awesome wonder to benefit us by interceding for us. So we've heard about three kinds of kings today. Some are charismatic leaders like Herod and try and be everything to everyone. They'll appeal to our emotions. They'll perhaps make us feel good about ourselves at first. But in the end, they'll only take from us and lead us towards death and darkness. Some are wise kings. They lean on learning. Sometimes they might lead us in the right direction. Sometimes all our studies take us to the right place. But we mustn't stop there. If we only engage with our brains and not our hearts and our souls and our spirits, then we'll completely miss out on what Jesus and God are doing. Or we can follow the one true king, Jesus Christ. The king who's profoundly human, who knows what it's like to suffer, who's born humbly, who suffered death on a cross, but who's also profoundly holy, who rose again in power and in glory. A king who is the only one who is truly worthy of the name. The one who doesn't need gold-covered carriages, who doesn't take from us, but instead gifts, gives to us. A gift from a generous God who loves us. And on this Advent Sunday, if you don't know this one true king, let me encourage you to get to know him. And if you do already know Jesus, then join me as we worship him. Let's lift up our voices in praise to our saviour. Let's worship him now.